Virginia Tech wrapped up its first spring under new football coach Brent Pry with Saturday's spring game, and a potential starter and maybe star emerged at the quarterback position. UVA will play its first spring game under Tony Elliott this Saturday, as fans get a glimpse of what the Cavaliers will look like around Brennan Armstrong. All that and more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 80 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, it's been a while since we've chatted and (laughs) a bunch of things have happened. We have a lot of spring football to get to today. Uh, Tech just had its game. We were both there in Blacksburg for that. We'll both be in Charlottesville this weekend for UVA, but we need to go back quickly and talk about your travels because you followed North Carolina basketball and Richmond's own Armando Baycott through the regional in Philadelphia to the final four in New Orleans. You covered Mike Krzyzewski's final game as Duke coach, but you know where I want to start. The first <laughs> thing I want to talk about, what's the best thing you ate in New Orleans? Well, Mike, before, before we uh, satisfy your culinary curiosity, <laughs> let, just a quick shout out. You mentioned him, Armando Baycott. What an amazing postseason that young man from Trinity Episcopal had for the Tar Heels. To think that that team that lost by 20 at home to Duke in February and then lost at home to Pitt, and people were talking about the Tar Heels not even making the NCAA tournament, for them to turn around and spoil Krzyzewski's last home game at Cameron and then end his career in the Final Four, no one Absolutely no one, not even Hubert Davis, envisioned that. And a lot of it was due to Armando Baycott. 99 rebounds, Mike, in six NCAA tournament games, the second most in history. And now he's coming back. Yeah, how about that? Right? I mean, he's a double-double machine. He has the year he has, and it feels like, right, David, it feels like the kind of year where you got all this momentum behind you, so you bolt. Uh, He's coming back. Uh, Leaky Black, I believe, is coming back. Yep. Hubert Davis, for a guy who people were questioning if he was a good hire after the pit game, (laughs) how quickly things turn. Hubert Davis looks like he's doing doing just fine. And how about the experience, though, of of following Mike Krzyzewski? Because you did his final two Carolina Duke games, uh, his final home game. We saw him in the ACC tournament in Brooklyn, and then to be there for for his last game uh, ever in the Final Four, which I think it's just very fitting that that he reached that level. I mean, he's meant so much to college basketball. He's done so much. Um, I thought it was great that he got there. Um, what was that like to be be around that? And that's historic. It it really is. I I I thought that his final home game at Cameron against Carolina was among the most unique atmospheres. I'd been privileged to to cover, and then it it doubled down in New Orleans. You know, the first ever NCAA tournament matchup between these two storied rivals, and the fact that Shashevsky's career literally hung in the balance. And you did not know how that game was going to turn until the last few possessions, and then Caleb Love hits that ridiculous. <laughs> three-pointer over Mark Williams' outstretched hands, and that's when you knew that Carolina was was going to prevail. 
and that Mike Krzyzewski's career was over. He handled it with all the grace uh, you would imagine. He even went up to Armando Baycott in the hallway afterward to check on how his sprained ankle was doing. And then how about the fact that the next day we find out that Baycott and Krzyzewski's grandson, Michael Severino, who's on the Duke team, who's since entered the portal, but they're boys. They like hang out in Chapel Hill and watch TV and play. I'm like, who who had that on their bingo card? It's, it's Armando Baycott and Coach K's grandson. <laughs> it's amazing because we get so wrapped up, and rightfully so, in the rivalry because it's such a, a great rivalry. Um, but if you think about some of the relationships, like they're good relationships, right? Like yeah. we focus on winning and losing and, and how intense it is. But, um, you know, we've heard people tell stories before, right, about um, – who, who played ping pong with Christian Leitner? Was that Hubert Davis? Yes, Hubert yeah, Davis so. <laughs> says that his best friend, his best teammate in the NBA was <laughs> Christian, Christian Leitner. right? And you don't think a Carolina guy is going to say that, but um, the, the rivalry is so intense. It's so passionate. There was so much emotion involved, as you mentioned, in these meetings because Coach K's future was, was right there on, on the precipice. Um but at the end of the day, these guys have more in common, right, than, than they don't. They, they are going through such similar things. And, um, yeah, they were a lot of fun. But, David, I'm not letting you off the hook. I, I know, know, I know. We've got to circle back. I want to know about the food. What's the best thing you ate in New Orleans? The best thing I ate is often what the best thing I eat in New Orleans, and that was the charbroiled oysters mm. at Drago's. Excellent. S- so sinful, so good, so much butter, so much garlic. It, they were awesome. And then, Mike, I found two new places. And I just, I, and the food was excellent at both of them, but the names were priceless. Juan's Flying Burrito. Wow. And then Lucy's Retired Surfer's Bar. <laughs> I'm going to put them down on my list here. Uh, that the, So the food was good too? It wasn't just the names? Oh, oh no. The food the food was <laughs> exceptional at both joints. I'll tell you, and, my experience in New Orleans, and, and maybe it's because competition right, kind of drives the bus there. Yeah. Any hole-in-the-wall place you dip into had pretty darn good food. And I think mm-hmm. it's because if you don't, how would you stay in business with, with yeah. so much great food? And uh, I mean, it, to me, it, it, I think New Orleans is the number one food city in the country um chicago's outstanding new york obviously there's diversity in new york that that's outstanding but uh, and san francisco has some things for me between the italian and the seafood and when those blend but for me uh new orleans is the number one food city in the country so very jealous of not just the history you saw on the basketball court but some of the meals you got to eat there that that weekend too yeah no it was really good and then you know, i haven't even mentioned the national championship game baycott was so gallant in, in that performance, he, he's playing on one leg and the dude got 15 and 15. I mean, how's that? He, he, Mike, he could not jump any higher than you or me. Yeah. And he still got 15 and 15 against Kansas in, until that last minute when his ankle gave out again. And there's that enduring image of him hopping on one foot down the court, trying to prevent a fast break. Yeah, well, for, for the record, Armando Baycott on one foot can hop higher than I can. Just so, <laughs> so, just so we're clear. But your point is well taken. It was uh, yeah. in a row. And, and David, it'd be interesting to kind of go back and when you have a little time to reflect. But to me, Armando, that may have been the single best season by an individual player 
in Carolina history. And that's saying a lot, right? Because they've had some really good ones there. But when you think about the consistency, when you think about the double-doubles, when you think about where the team got to, and when you think about the color aspect, the anecdotal aspect of Hubert Davis early in the year talking about, I'm surprised I have to coach effort out of this team. The only guy I can count on night in, night out is Armando Baycott. Um, it's got to be up there if it's not the greatest with one of the greatest single seasons by a Carolina player. No doubt. No. And I, I I feel not not that postseason counts in, in these things, but I feel somewhat vindicated having voted for Armando Baycott as ACC player of the year. I had no problem with Alondis Williams winning it. Baycott finished second, but, uh, I'm glad I ended up voting for him. And Mike Krzyzewski said that he was his choice too. Of course, now that we know the relationship there, maybe maybe yes. it's a little suspect, right? Right. But, but no, there, there's no questioning how how great he was uh, this year, and and wrapped up, put a bow on on a really great, uh, entertaining college basketball season for both of us. Now we're transitioning into spring, which means fighting with my backyard to try to get grass to grow, which hmm. has been a, a losing effort. I, I'm I'm basically hobbled uh, in that effort, but more importantly, it means spring football. Uh, David, we were in Blacksburg Saturday, the Hokies' first spring game under Brent Pry. I thought before we get into the football stuff, really good fan turnout, right? Yes. First time they're having a game in a couple of years. Um, a new hire always does, but it seems like the arrival of Brent Pry has infused some energy into that program, doesn't it? Agreed. And especially because it didn't end well for, for Justin Fuente. The Hokies have had three losing seasons in the last four years. Obviously, that's unacceptable to the faithful. It's unacceptable to the administration. And it's unheard of since the, since the very beginning of Frank Beamer's tenure back in, in the 1980s. So, yeah, and the fact that Brent Pry has Hokie chops, having been a graduate assistant there, for the 95 and 96 seasons, years that were very good to the Hokies and winning Big East championships and making a Sugar Bowl and an Orange Bowl. I think that's really lent itself to uh, the enthusiasm surrounding his arrival. You know, I I talked to a couple of former coaches, uh, Justin Hamilton, Jack Tyler, both of whom are former players at Tech as well. And um, when I asked, you know, what needs to change or or what what has to be done different to get the program back uh, to where they want it, they both praised Pry for his re-engagement with fans, that energy that he's brought, um, the re-commitment to recruiting the state, um, you know, and, and Jack Tyler made a great point. He said, sometimes it's, it's the correction, right? Whatever was lacking under the previous yeah. staff, that's where you start. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think he's right. And I think Brent Pry was wise to, uh, take note of those things and, and start there at the end of the day, though, just, just like anywhere in America, it's going to come down to the product they put on the field. David, we got our first real look at, at what the Brent Pry hokey program is going to look like in the spring game. So what impressed you? What stood out um, and maybe what questions, Langer? What, what were your takeaways from Saturday at Lane Stadium? Well, I don't think either of us w- want to uh, overcomplicate this. Grant Wells <laughs> stood out, you know, because we, we all are guilty of obsessing over the quarterback, especially when there's not an incumbent like there is in, in, in Charlottesville with, with the aforementioned Brennan Armstrong. But it we, we wanted to see – Jason Brown and, and Grant Wells, the two incoming transfers. And Wells had the good fortune of operating behind a more stable offensive line. And he had some time. 
and he found Caleb Smith for touchdown passes of 51 and 47 yards. He ran the ball. You know, he, he was, he was an in orange Jersey. Can't, can't tackle him, <clears throat> but still you could tell he's willing to keep it boots, naked boots. And he, you know, he, he really did throw it well. And, you know, and one thing, Mike, I kind of chided myself afterward for, for not having asked this, especially when I was walking to my car after filing and realizing how windy it was Saturday. And I wondered how that affected the quarterbacks. Yeah, it's a very fair question. We, we talked about, you know, the line and, and, and how that affected them. We talked about how they split up the rosters, more running backs in one place, more receivers. But you're right. Leaving there, you realize, well, I think we noticed walking just to the interviews. Yes. Um, it was like, wow. There's a there's a breeze here that um, that was considerable. Now it was there for both quarterbacks. Yeah, it was there for both quarterbacks, and, and there was certainly a disparity in performance. Uh, Brett Pry did mention that the, the group, the offensive line group that was with Jason Brown and that part of the offense had their issues, had their struggles. Yeah. Uh, that certainly added to to Brown's issues, but it certainly felt walking out of Lane Stadium like, hey, that's the starting quarterback, yes. right? I mean, it, it's it's hard to imagine and. I get why you keep the competition going, and especially with the transfer portal. <laughs> I get why you don't want to be too quick. Not that Jason Brown's going anywhere, but just as a procedure, why you don't want to be too quick to name your starter. But um, all signs, right, point to Grant Wells? Yes, n- n- no doubt. And he, you know, even if you look, Mike, at the body of work coming in to, to, to this season and the fact that Wells just has more game reps than, than Brown does. You know, especially at, at the FBS level, having having played at Marshall and Brown played the FCS level at St. Francis, and and then took over late in the season at, at South Carolina. So so Brown has been in Power Five games, whereas Wells has not. But I think overall, <clears throat> Wells's body of work. If you were just looking at the two, you would say, okay, he has a leg up. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, not not to get us sidetracked here, but, you know, I, I did a story off of that game talking about the, the health of the quarterback position, right? It used to be you had a starter, you had a young guy coming along, maybe you had a veteran in the program who you could count on for a series, uh, and then you had kind of a project or a walk-on guy, and that was a healthy quarterback room. And now with the transfer portal, it's hard for teams to keep that. And it's been a big part of the reason that Justin Fuente and the previous staff struggled, right? That position became a revolving door for, for a lot of reasons um, that, we, that we don't need to all kind of rehash. But I thought an interesting thing came up uh, talking to a bunch of former coaches um, in, in the past two weeks, and they suggested the idea, and Brent Pry has mentioned this too, that maybe the NIL uh, cash collective, that, that situation, creates a way for programs to keep a quarterback who isn't going to play. But when I asked Grant Wells about that, he said, hey, guys want to play. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Wasn't that a good answer? I thought he handled that question because it was, you know, it's after the spring game. He's not expecting this uh, big philosophical question coming from me. But his point was, guys want to play. And yeah, maybe depending on their personal circumstances, somebody might hang around for a good NIL deal. But if a guy wants to transfer because he thinks he's got a better shot at playing time somewhere else, money's probably not going to move the needle. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And also, Mike, you know, I don't think any of us, I certainly don't, quite have a grip on what NIL is going to look like as it continues to evolve. You know, we're, we're, we're so new into this 
and what are the parameters eventually going to be? Because, you know, a lot of these collectives, they feel like, and if they feel like if they, in a way they are, pay for play. Oh, absolutely. And n- not a whole lot of name, image, and likeness involved here they're you know the athletes literally don't have to do anything to 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 be compensated and also i i wonder as again as things continue how many people are going to be willing to invest that kind of money to retain a backup quarterback i mean that's Good luck finding a consistent pool of donors or or anyone fans willing to undertake that. Yeah, well, but the thing, two things there. One, and you know this from being around this program long enough, nobody is more popular in the Virginia Tech football program year in, year out than the backup quarterback. <laughs> yeah. I mean, think about Mark Leal when they had Logan Thomas and everybody yeah. just wanted to see. But the other thing is with these collectives, and, and if you haven't checked out uh, ESPN's ACC writer, David Hale, had a really smart thread, I thought, uh, on this topic. But NIL and these collectives, I don't know that they're the same thing. And you, you just made the point, right? These guys aren't getting paid for their name, their image, or their likeness to be used somewhere. Mm-hmm. Really what we have is NILS, name, image, likeness, and status. Your status is you're a member of the college football team, and that by itself can get you paid, or yeah. college basketball, soccer. And and I don't know if that's good or bad, and, and we, we are both, I think, on the side of you know athletes deserve a bigger cut of, of, of what comes in from their efforts. Um, but it absolutely feels like they created name, image, likeness rights and then just skipped right over it and said, we're going to put everything in this basket. And now you've got these collectives and it's going to be up to the school, right? How to dole out this money when they have the collectives. And what's interesting about that um, or the collective itself, depending on each school, I know has things said a little differently. Um, What's interesting about that is what happens the first time you go into spring and a couple running backs transfer out. And now Mm -hmm. you've only got one experienced ball carrier. And he says, you know what? I want a better deal. I'm going to hold out, right? Just like in the NFL. I'm going to hold out for a better NIL collective offering because I have leverage now. You need me. Um, I think it's going to be fascinating. I mean, I, I think we're, I hope we're going to be able to do an entire episode uh, over the summer on NIL, the implications, what's happening. Um, but for where we are right now, it's, it's just a fascinating topic. And and not only that, we, we also got into academic bonus talk. Yes. With with, with Whit Babcock there at, at halftime of, of the spring game. I mean, who who would have thought, Mike, when, when Tech launched the drive for 25 back in late 2016, that the subsequent windfall would help them fund five, you know, thousands of dollars in bonuses to athletes simply to remain academically eligible. Right. I mean, it's it, but when the Supreme Court talks, you better listen. Yeah, and 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 the movement has been to compensate these athletes for a long time. The question has been, how do you do it? Yep. I love the academic bonuses because to me, that's saying like you're effectively entering into a contract. And part of your responsibility is to be available. It's not paying you for touchdowns. It's not paying you for three-pointers. It's saying your job is to be available for your team. So we're going to give you a bonus if you get that done. Um, And that still kind of fits with the student-athlete model. And and, and I really like that. And, you know, one of the things, and you wrote about this this week, but Witt talked about not just, you know, trying to do some of that, but trying to be at the top, right? Trying to be aggressive and trying to be among the best. And that is where schools are going to separate themselves as we muddle through 
And again, we put it all under the NIL banner. But as we we muddle through money to athletes, um, that's going to be a big focus. It, it really will. I thought he made a good point, Mike, that the athletes that could really help mm-hmm. are those on partial scholarships because you know they have, in some cases or in many cases, tens of thousands of dollars to pay in tuition and room and board and fees. And if they can make an extra fifty nine eighty, that's the, the the maximum for these academic bonuses. You know that really eases the financial burden on them and their families. Absolutely, and that's been something. You know, we're going to focus on. Does somebody give a quarterback a million dollars? But in terms of athlete welfare and well-being. And this goes back to when they did, remember they did full cost of attendance and that meant the schools could compensate you you for your books and some of your other, and and the athletes who were really helped the most by that, like you said, they're they're the Olympic sport athletes who are paying part of these bills. And um, I think it's fantastic when they can do more for for that group. Um, And I think tech, and this is where, you know, when you talk about being aggressive there, some schools are saying, Hey, if you're on a 40% ride, you can get 40% of the bonus. And Tech's plan, and we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out, but their plan, uh, if I understood it correctly, was to say, doesn't matter if you're on 40%, you're right. going to get all the bonus, and that's your point, right? Those mm-hmm. are the guys who need it the most. So, um, one, kudos to Whit Babcock for coming and talking to the media at halftime of the spring game because uh, 80s haven't been the most accessible in these trying times at, at, at times, and that was great of him to do that. Um, but also kudos to the department for going that direction. And, and really, th- that's the... The mindset, right, or the goal of what we've got here is how can we get this money to athletes that it's going to help? And, and it doesn't mean recruiting enticements. It means these other things we're talking about. Yep. And, th- and that's what Miami and Clemson, have all, they've already started yep. here in the spring semester, is every athlete that remains academically ineligible or academically eligible, excuse me, is receiving the full 5980. Yeah, you don't need to offer any bonuses to be ineligible. I, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay, but we digress. Yes. Back to the football field. Um, David, what overall uh, are, are you thinking now about this Virginia Tech team in year one uh, under Pry after seeing the spring game? I think they'd be <clears throat> fortunate to crack the top three of the Coastal Division. I mean, I, I just think it's a it's a pedestrian team that's probably looking at six and six, Five and seven, maybe seven and five, and in a best case deal. You know, lots of questions about offensive line, especially depth at the tackle position. You know, who you know, there was no running game to speak of on on Saturday. Malachi Thomas didn't even play. I mean, I kind of suspect he's gonna be the if not the starting running back, certainly a central part of the running game after what we saw from him in that one stretch <clears throat> last season that included a couple hundred yard games in a row. So, you know, I, I still have a lot of questions about this squad. Yeah. It reminds me, was it Wendy's in the eighties? Um, had the commercial, where's the beef? Yep. Um, interior defensive line, offensive line. I just, now <laughs> as we just hit on with, with the portal stuff, a lot could change between now and the fall. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a couple key pickups really could change your impression of things. But um, yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, Brent Pry has his work cut out from my biggest concern from the spring game was what I thought was the strength going in. I thought the secondary is, is loaded with some talent and some experience. I thought Breon Murray had a really rough day yes, he Saturday, did. whether it was missed tackles or getting beaten coverage. I thought Shamari Connor had a really rough day, uh, missed tackles and in coverage. Uh, 
those are guys that I think are all ACC caliber defensive backs um, and didn't see it Saturday. Now, maybe Saturday was just a rough day, right? So mm-hmm. you don't want to put too much stock into it. But to me, that was a bit of a red flag. Like the area that I think they're strong in um, didn't really show up for me. It, it didn't. And, you know, it's, it's like I think Brent Price said in one of his early spring media ops, whenever the offense has a good day, you're thinking as a coach, well, what's wrong with my defense? <laughs> And then when the defense has a good day, you're thinking, oh, our, our offense stinks. You know, right. so it, it, there, there's just no middle ground there for a coach. They're always going to be parsing it and looking to get better. But, I, yeah, I, I, I didn't think Murray or uh, Connor distinguished himself on Saturday. Uh, Dorian Strong, though, uh, Stroman, I think they've got p- potential mm-hmm. back there. We'll see how it <clears throat> it all shakes out in in the fall. Yeah, I think that's the, the spot with the most talent. So um, maybe something for Brent Pry as, as he puts together his defense. Uh, maybe something for him to hang his hat on. UVA, there's no question where they're hanging their hat, right? They got a quarterback coming back who uh, is as good as there is in the ACC. Uh, superstar caliber, fantastic wide receivers. David? <laughs> Are they going to be able to protect him, or is this going to be Brendan Armstrong a lot of throwing on the run this year? That's the that's the million dollar question <laughs> surrounding at least the offense. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll get to whether they're going to be able to stop anybody yeah. in, in a moment. I'm sure, but and, and Mike, I'm not sure that the Saturday spring game is is going to educate us much because aren't aren't we in, in the, in the coaching staff kind of waiting to see how some of these incoming transfers. Yeah. They, pan, they've got pan out in camp Two division one transfers coming in the offensive line, a right tackle and a left tackle. Now, if I'm not mixed up, they're from Dartmouth and Georgetown. Yeah. So they ain't so, coming from Oklahoma. And coming Michigan, from Bama right? and Georgia. Exactly. So, you know, that those kind of transfers feel great to plug a hole. Are, are they going to be the anchor of an offensive line that this spring from from the limited we've seen has nothing, right? It's, it's not a college offensive line right now. You add two guys from small level colleges, does that solve your problem? David, My my when I close my eyes at night, and I don't really close my eyes and think about UVA football, but if I did, what I'd be envisioning is Bryce Perkins' first year where yeah. every pass play was essentially a sprint out run away from the blocking that you knew wasn't going to hold and then either throw it or tuck it and go. Um, That wasn't the offense, the explosive offense we saw with Brandon Armstrong last year. There was a lot of uh, five-step drop, a lot of time in the pocket, a lot of perfectly thrown deep balls to really talented receivers out on the edge. It feels like this offense is going to have to be short, quick strike, and scheme it up so the receivers can can then take it the distance. I, I don't see this line giving Brendan Armstrong time to throw a lot of 75-yard bombs. Billy Kemp may catch 200 passes. <laughs> yeah, for 300 <laughs> yards. <laughs> right? I, yeah, absolutely. It's just, and I'm not saying you can't win that way, but when you think about the weapons and you think about the arm, um, it would be a shame if that's what it's reduced to. Um we haven't seen seen much running game-wise. Um, Ronnie Walker got hurt, and they said he was having a great camp. Uh, so that certainly stunted things. Mike Hollins, Mike Hollins uh, yeah. they got on him early about his, his work habits, his practice habits. Um, they seem to be encouraged with the direction he's going. Uh, but it feels like it might be another year going, again, back to, Arms, uh, to Perkins' first year, where Armstrong's the leading rusher. 
and a lot of throwing on the run. And, and again, you, you can win that way, but um, this offense and these wide receivers are capable of so much more. They, they are that, and, and they're going to need some help from the, the other side of the ball. I mean, it's, it's going to have to be complimentary, as coaches often talk about. Because, heck, Mike, last year, Virginia averaged its most points per game since 1990. You know, the, the, the Sean Moore, Herman Moore, Terry Kirby, Nicky Fisher, Bruce McGonigal group. I mean, as, as storied an offense as there is in Virginia history, one that averaged about 40 points and 500 yards a game in a completely different era. And yet still, the Cavaliers finished 6-6 six and six right. overall and 4-4 four and four in the league. It, it, it felt like... You know, they, they, they wasted a, a record-setting offense. Virginia set a school record for total offense last year and went 500. Yeah, I mean, that's extremely disappointing. It does feel wasted, uh, and it's why there's so much concern about, hey, are they going to waste uh, another year of Armstrong? That defense is going to be interesting, David, because a year ago, really for the past two seasons, they struggled with the big play, right? They, they seemed okay, they seemed okay, and then bam. There was a 40-yarder. Bam, there was a 60-yarder. And they gave up a, a slew of, and both run and pass, big plays that that squandered what had been previously, you know, good first and second downs. And, I mean, we saw at times, coaches always talk about getting an opponent behind the chains, right? Which means you're in second and long. You're in third and long. And we saw a lot of third and longs converted on this bunch. We're not quite sure, at least I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> what we're going to see scheme-wise. John Radzinski, every time he talks to us, he says he's a base 3-4 defense. Every time we talk to the players, they seem to indicate a 4-2-5 kind of scheme. Some of it may be semantics, right? Yeah. What are you calling things? And, you know, uh, Radzinski plays with, with the bandit. So, essentially, he's going to have four guys rushing the quarterback every play. Are they three linebackers and a defensive end? Are they three linebackers and a stand-up defensive end? Uh, how are you looking at that? But the crux of this defense is going to be four guys coming for the quarterback, seven guys back in coverage. He doesn't have a, a tremendously aggressive or exotic blitz package, uh, at least from what he's told his staff. Um, he doesn't like to leave his corners one-on-one uh, -on, -one on an island, kind of the way Bud Foster used to at Tech. Uh, so I think the image we're getting is a 4-2-5 that hopes to get after the quarterback with, with its four guys and then make it really hard uh, for the quarterback to find space to throw the ball. Well, that's Chris Slade and his defensive ends are, are going to have to step up and, and, and put some pressure on the quarterback. Because last year, Mike, Virginia was last in the ACC in sacks mm -hmm. at, at one and a half per game average and that needs needs to change and who better to teach those cats <laughs> than Slade who still and Mike I didn't realize this until I went and looked at the ACC media guide this week he's still Chris Slate is still the ACC's career sacks leader yeah, all which, these decades later. Which is unbelievable. And you, you know, when you talked about that old Virginia offense with Moore and Moore and, and Kirby and everything they put up, they did it at a time back when people played defense. Slade set these records back at a time when teams weren't dropping back 50 times to pass. Mm -hmm. Right. He did, like the, the, I would love to have somebody break down the percentage of sacks Chris Slade got when an opponent dropped back because <laughs> it's off the charts, David. Yeah. They, they were, that was back when they ran the ball. And um, it, it's just, it's just wild to think of how good he was. And you wrote about how good it is now that he's back in the program. 
Yeah. Oh, no, I think it, it, it's great. And he's thrilled to be there. And he, he was, I mean, you were on the, the, the Zoom with us the other day. He was terrific talking about how much of a mentor Al Grow yeah. was to him, not from a time in Virginia they spent together, although Chris was teammates with Mike Grow. I think it was for one or two seasons they overlapped as Chris was exiting and Mike was entering the program. But Al Groh was Chris Slade's defensive coordinator in his first four seasons with the New England Patriots and was his coach at the Senior Bowl prior to the 93 draft. And, and as you, as you and they, wrote, he remains the guy, right, that Chris yep. goes to when he's got questions about football. Absolutely. And and Al Groh, I mean, he's in his mid to late 70s now. I've talked had occasion to talk to him a few times here in the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months. And he is such a treat to talk to football. He's so sharp and his, his memory is so precise. And you go back and you double check him because he, he, he recalls things in such detail that you think, ah, oh, he's, he can't be right here, but you go back and look at old play by plays and old stat sheets and he's got the score, right. And he's got the down and distance. That's right. Amazing. I'm like, it's amazing. dang. It's amazing. Um, that always strikes me that the few times I've covered golf and you know, oh, yeah. you're interviewing a golfer and they'll say, well, you know, on Friday on three, I was here. I had this lie. I hit this club. So Saturday when I came out, I wanted to do this. And then today the wind was different. And the wind reminds me of when we were here in 2012 playing this course. And you're like sitting there. I mean, when I play golf, I, I, I mean, maybe because my shots are so terrible. I try <laughs> to forget. I'm like a cornerback, right? On to the next one. Forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> and these guys remember stuff. And um, there are coaches like, you know, Al Groh, and, and we've had other guys that just, it's amazing the level of detail and context they remember, right? Like it's not something fluky. It's not, oh, this fluky thing happened. Let me tell you a great story. It's, I'm talking to you about something. Oh, I remember a great play that illustrates that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's fan- fascinating that the minds <laughs> to remember those kind of details. Yeah. Dean Smith was that way too, Mike. It's, it's just, it's, a, it's, a, and it's a lot of fun. Right. When you're talking to guys like that, yes. um, because you do feel like you feel like it's a post game interview and they're talking about something that happened two, three decades ago. It's it's remarkable. Uh, so, David, I'm curious, the spring game on the field. We just talked about you know, offensive line concerns. What's the defense going to look like? Have it in the stands. And, and Virginia has notoriously had small crowds for its spring event, which which hasn't been a game. TV is pushing all these schools to be more game like. Should we judge the energy and the enthusiasm for Tony Elliott in this program by how many butts are in the seat on Saturday? No, no, because I mean, you've been to enough Virginia spring games. It's just not an event that, that moves the needle in Charlottesville and, and, and never has. Now they could surprise me and we might have 20,000 in, in, in the seats. Uh, but we're talking about a program, Scott stadium seats, 61, five. Would you care to guess the last season that UVA averaged even 50,000 seats, 50,000 fans per home game? Gosh, I, I can't imagine it's been since I've been here. 2008. <laughs> yeah. So four years before I started uh, covering at the Times Dispatch. Yeah. But now, I mean, a, a healthy a, a healthy spring game turnout is part of a healthy program. Isn't, it like, isn't that something they want to get to? Not that it matters, but isn't that an indication of Hey, fans are hungry for the fall. Yes. Oh, it it, it is, and it, it's just e- even back then when 
Virginia was routinely getting crowds in, in the 50s on fall Saturdays. The the spring game was was never a big deal. Now it was, you know, it's a different era and things, you know, we, they're not on TV and there's not as much or and there's more media coverage now. But yeah, I mean it, it it's a little bit of an indicator, but um you know, if if Tony Bennett wanted to have a scrimmage, you know, if they wanted to put a court out on Scott Stadium for a little pregame basketball scrimmage, maybe they could get twenty thousand. Maybe I don't know coming off coming off last year, but maybe. <laughs> uh, well, so you think about that, then you think about we talked about at Tech reengaging with fans, reengaging with state recruiting. What are the things that Tony Elliott has done uh, early on here that that have impressed you and and, and have you saying okay this is going a good direction. Well, I, I just think that Tony Elliott and UVA are a very good fit, much like Brent Pry and, and Virginia tech. And as soon as the job came open, you and I mentioned Tony Elliott, uh, right after Bronco Mendenhall's resignation. And I think he's, he's continued to, to play into that much like Brent Pry and the Hokie staff, Elliot and the Cavaliers staff have prioritized the state as as well they should. And it doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. There are enough players in this state, usually, for both programs to, to thrive. It doesn't have to be, oh, we dominate or they dominate. If both get their share, I think both programs can succeed. So I think Elliot and, you know, Slade and, and Sintum and Hagens and, you know, all his coaches that, that have Commonwealth ties will, will do well when it, when it comes to recruiting here. So I think, I think that's been good. And I think he has been engaging. So uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But as you mentioned, it's all about the product that you put on the field. And it's going to be inevitable that Tony Elliott and Brent Pry are going to be compared and contrasted and uh, measured just, against each other. Right? Just like Mendenhall and Fuente. Exactly. I mean, how crazy is it that Fuente and Mendenhall came in at the exact same time and then exited at the exact same time? So now here we are six seasons later, you know, having the same conversations. Yeah, th- I will say thank you, Bronco Mendenhall, for recognizing that, <laughs> that is a great storyline for sports writers and and for giving us that again with, with your timing. Uh, they're going to be compared. They're going to be contrasted. It's going to be a lot of fun because these are two rivals and, and let's see how they do. And uh, that brings us to this week's edition of Who You Got. Thank you, Mike. You know, both uh, football teams have brand new coaches, as you just mentioned. They have some key returners. Both have some major question marks as well. So which team, Virginia or Virginia Tech, will win more games this season? Let's start with uh, Mike. Who you got? Boy, it's close because I'm not high on either of them. Join <laughs> <laughs> um, the club. I, um, if you had given me the option of a push, I think they're both maybe five and seven. Um I'm going to take Virginia because of what Armstrong uh, and those receivers can do. Um, I do that with such reservations because of that offensive line. I mean, it, that, that offensive line feels like the kind of problem spot that can sink a team. I mean, turn it into a three or four win team. Um, but Virginia Tech, I, I don't see any where to hang your hat right now. Um, there, there's nothing about them that I say, well, I really like this. 
but this. So I'm going to simply go with Brennan Armstrong. I think they win more games. I'm talking like a 6-5 victory, and you you need the bullpen to hold it down at the end. But uh, (laughs) I'm going to go with UVA and Armstrong on the strength of what Brennan Armstrong can do. All right. Thank you, Mike. David? Mike, just for for the sake of debate, I'll go the other way with Virginia Tech, again, with zero confidence in, in the pick. And, and, and I'll tell you why, because if Virginia and Brennan Armstrong were going to beat the Hokies, why wouldn't it have been last season at home with Virginia Tech having already fired its coach? And, and hey, I know Armstrong was hobbled there at the end and, and, and all that, but that's no excuse. If you can't beat Virginia Tech at home with your record-setting quarterback when the Hokies coach has been fired and they're reeling and they're playing with an interim and now the game's in Blacksburg this season, and I think it could come down to that game as to who wins more games for for the entire season, give me the Hokies. Oh, I get it. I I think we both probably got them right around five wins going into that regular Mm -hmm. season finale. So, But remember, David, and you make a great point, if not then, when, but that was Virginia's defense. Yeah, That was the problem. And I've got some confidence in Radzinski to eliminate the big play aspect. I don't know that they're going to be a dominant defense. I don't know that they're going to be a takeaway machine, a sack machine, but they just it, the feel of, of his plan seems to be one of, hey, we're not going to be this team that gives up huge chunk yardage. We're going to make you earn it down the field. We're going to tighten up in the red zone. We're going to keep our team in games. And then Armstrong maybe can be the difference. But again, David, with that offensive line, it, it could be uh, it could be a tall tall ask of Brendan Armstrong uh, to, to do anything really with that offense. We're going to see. Well, how about before we get out of here, let's hit on a whole bunch of odds and ends because there's sure. a lot, lot that's happened. Let's start with the news this week that Kihei Clark is coming back for UVA. Five years ago, the kid has the, the uh, assist of, of a lifetime to help them win the, the 2019 uh, national title as, as a freshman. Uh, since then, obviously up and down team results. They've asked a lot of Kihei Clark different roles in different years. Right, That next year, uh, they asked him to, to be a, a scorer and to be a focal point. The year after that, a little bit more of a blend. This past year, uh, it was kind of unclear at times what they needed from him. Sometimes it was scoring. Sometimes it was other things. Uh, but David, I, I know I know fans seem to be, for whatever reason, on Twitter split about this. It's, it's good news, right? If you're Virginia, that you're getting a player like Kihei Clark back? What program wouldn't want, A, to have its top six scores return B to mix with an acclaimed recruiting class and C to, to have that last piece, Kihei Clark, that's the one link remaining on the roster to the 2019 national champions. Isn't it a good thing to have in that locker room and to have when they walk out into John Paul Jones arena, a dude who can still point up at that banner and say, I know how to get there. Watch how I do things. 100% agree. I I just think it's all good. And I don't think people give enough credit to Kihei Clark in this area. Kihei Clark, and I'm probably overstating this here. It might be hyperbole, revolutionized the way Virginia and Tony Bennett used the pack line. Okay, that's 
probably hyperbole. But with Kihei Clark, Tony Bennett was willing to extend that defense further up the court, pick the ball up sooner, pressure the ball even more um, earlier in possessions. I thought he brought a whole new dimension and credit to Bennett and that staff for, for seeing that and making that adjustment. Um, I thought he brought a whole new dimension to the pack line. I, I think it's one of the things opposing coaches talk about most when they talk about the challenge is here's Kihei Clark and, and Beekman and Franklin on the wings I thought became very good as the year went on. Beekman was obviously outstanding. Uh, but Kihei Clark picking the ball up when he does eats into the play clock and now you've got even less time to get something done against that great pack line defense. So to me, Kihei Clark and, and those top six returning, it's going to show up. Yeah, they're the top six scorers, right? I think it's going to show up even more in the defensive end where you got a bunch of guys who are experienced now running the pack line. Um, and don't forget, David, there's still a chance. They're involved with at least two portal guys. Uh, ben, Bennett Vanderplas, who, whose dad played uh, college ball with Tony Bennett, the forward out of Ohio, uh, he's visited. And Sean McNeil, the guard out of West Virginia, who's kind of like a Franklin type, a, a two-guard uh, slashing scorer shooter type. Um, so there may still be more for this roster. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. K.A. Clark coming back, a good thing. Conversely, Naheem Aline, John Ojiako from Virginia Tech, they both are transferring out. Certainly they saw their minutes dwindle and, and, and younger players coming in seem to be taking their spot. But um, Aline, at least, I thought was a guy who had star potential. I fell in love with him when we went out to Indy for that uh, NCAA tournament game that they lost to Florida. I thought he uh, looked like a star in the making. Is it a concern, David, or is it just reality of, of the times that those guys are out? No, I, th- I think it's a it's a reality of the times, Mike. Ojiako just wasn't getting any run. I understand that completely. And then I think Aline saw Darius Maddox continue to emerge late in the season, especially, you know, with with the game winning shots A at Miami and then B against Clemson in in the ACC tournament, without which Virginia Tech doesn't win the ACC tournament or make the NCAAs. Uh, And it, it just seemed almost inevitable that he would explore his options. You know, the, the big question remains with the Hokies is what do Keve Aluma and Justin Mutz decide? My, my guess is that neither returns. I would be very surprised if both did. I think it would be a win for tech if one of them came back. Yeah, I agree. I think Mutz is the more likely. Yes candidate and I think that's great because we talked a lot about his all-around game and, and he's a guy you can build around so uh, it will be interesting to see and, and David week to week is as we get back to doing this podcast rosters and basketball football they're just going to keep changing that's just the reality of oh the yeah things. the Hokies are the, the Hokies are involved with Vanderplus and others in, in, in the portal and they're also looking at high school guys and, and including one from DeMatha who played for Mike Jones yeah. and uh, th- there's all kinds of moving parts here. We'll try to keep up with them, and, and you guys keep listening. Thanks for listening today. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next time.